Today, is, well, there's a couple, just a couple of announcements. There are sign-ups out there for men's breakfast, women's breakfast, and also women's luncheon uh, coming up this month. So it's big letters, so it must be, it must be important. Um, our text uh, this morning that we're going to kind of base uh, our study out of is Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. Um, concerning the resurrection of our Lord. Um, this is not a solemn day. This is not a day for uh, a, a sadness or a dirge. This is a day of celebration. Amen. This is a day of celebration because the resurrection is key uh, to our faith. It's absolutely elemental to what we believe. And I want us to, to start with, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, from, from Matthew, sorry. Go over to 1 Corinthians, if you would with me. I just want to read really quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. Uh, and going down to verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And this is Paul, of course, writing to the church in Corinth uh, concerning the faith. And in, in chapter uh, 15, verse 12, he says... Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. I wonder and I marvel at the fact that there are churches throughout uh, our nation and throughout different parts of the world who, if you talk to the clergy and you ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ's physical resurrection from the grave, their answer will be no. And I marvel at that uh, because, you know, the Bible is the basis for all that we believe. Everything that we know about God and everything that we know about his nature and everything that we know about what he expects of us comes through the studying of his holy word. And we're commanded to know the word. Uh, to understand what it says so that we might be equipped and so that we might have an answer within ourselves. Uh, it's not a blind faith. Uh, you know, faith, at the end of the day, faith is faith. You have faith or you don't have faith. Uh, and there is a, a, a context of believing in something that you have not seen. Uh, instead, something that you hope for is what you cling to and what you believe. But there's nothing in the scripture and there's nothing in our faith that would cause us to believe in something with no basis and no evidence whatsoever. Uh, I'm here to tell you today that no matter how much you study the word and no matter how many you understand the prophecies and their fulfillments and how the word of God has been proven right over and over and over again, if you lack faith, you still are going to be unable to believe. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But faith is essential. Faith is the cornerstone of everything that we have in Jesus Christ and in the church and in our pursuit of God and in our understanding of him. Faith is key. Faith is elemental. Uh, and so to, to have a so-called faith and say, yet I don't believe what the word of God says, well, Paul says our faith is futile. And the preaching that we do is empty. Listen to what he says. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
You know, just the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and suffered for us and his blood was shed for us, uh, that is the atonement of our sacrifice. But what sealed it, what sealed the promise, what confirmed it, what made it true, what made it for all ages is the fact that he rose from the grave. It is essential. It is a cornerstone of everything that we believe. Then also, those who have fallen asleep or passed away or died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And what Paul's talking about there is the fact that through Adam, sin entered into the world. Adam was created, the Bible teaches, in God's image and in God's likeness without sin to have fellowship with God. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they disobeyed God, sin entered into the world through their disobedience. And then when they began to have children, the scripture teaches us that they had children in their image and in their likeness. And that's the, why, that's the reason why down to this day, every single man, woman, and child on planet earth who is born is born into sin. It's not something that has to be taught to you. It's not something that has to be explained, explained to you. We are all of us naturally selfish, self-centered, sinful creatures. It's as easy as breathing. It's as natural as breathing. Any Christian who's ever surprised at themselves when they sin doesn't quite get it. That's what you do. You sin. That's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He didn't come. Remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees were so upset because Jesus was hanging around with tax collectors and prostitutes. You've got to understand, in that day and in that culture, and even in the Jewish communities and cultures of, 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 of belief today to this day, a Hasidic Jewish man doesn't even, doesn't even touch or go near a woman in general. But to be around anyone who is a Gentile or a sinner is unheard of. And to them, to see Jesus Christ hanging around in the company of sinners was so far outside and off of anything that they had ever known or understood. It was revolutionary. And they saw Jesus legitimately as not being a good teacher because if you're good, you can't hang around with people who are not good. And so when they approach Jesus and they begin to question him about this as disciples, why does your teachers, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, knowing and understanding their thoughts, makes this famous, wonderful statement and one of the greatest he ever made and one I'm so thankful for, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, the Son of Man did not come to save the righteous, but sinners, and to call them to repentance. If you're sitting here today and you don't know and understand that you're a sinner, regardless of how long or how short you've walked with Christ, you don't get it. We are all of us sinners. And Jesus came to die for us, but the resurrection of our Lord is what sealed the promise. 
uh, for since by man came death, uh, by man also came the resurrection. For in Adam all die, that is through sin. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive because of his sacrifice and his resurrection. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Speaking of our resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. Now, concerning the resurrection... Uh, there is a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament that, that really speak to the, the resurrection, but there's one in particular that stands out, and that is in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. And David writes this concerning the Messiah, as he's speaking of the Messiah, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. Uh, And in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, the prophet Hosea writes, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and in the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, said himself, Therefore my Father loves me, Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. In John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Uh, Jesus, speaking of his death and rising again on the third day, he speaks of it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew chapter 17, verse 23. Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Mark chapter 10, verse 34, Luke 9, 22, Luke 18, 33, Luke 24, 7, and John 2, 19. In all of these passages, in the accounts of Jesus Christ's life, his disciples recount him saying, the Son of Man will be turned over to sinful men. He'll be scourged, and he'll be beaten, and he'll be put to death. But on the third day, on the third day. But remember uh, that the people who originally surrounded Jesus and the people who followed after Jesus did so because of the miracles that he performed. Now, the miracles that Jesus performed were signs to validate his ministry, to validate the things that he said that they were true. If you remember, when the men brought their friend who, had, who was uh, paralyzed and he was on a, on, a, on, a, like on a stretcher and there was no room to get into the house that Jesus was teaching out of, so they opened up the roof and lowered him down. You guys remember this account. And Jesus, the first thing that he says to the man is, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees that are there watching, and, and, and there's two types of people, maybe, maybe more, but there's those people who are watching because they want to know, and there's people that are watching because they want to judge. And the Pharisees were only ever there because they wanted to judge. They never had any intention of believing in what Jesus Christ said or taught, regardless of what he did. And so when Jesus made this statement to the man, uh, your sins are forgiven you, they said within themselves... How can this 
being a man, how can him, being a man, forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, what would be easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or take up your mat and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man does have authority to forgive sins, I say to this man, take up your mat and go your way. And the man stood up on his feet, picked up his mat, and went home. The purpose of the miracles were not to wow us or to amaze us. Wow, Jesus is great because he walked on water. Wow, Jesus is great because he healed the blind and he healed the lame and he healed the leper. The purpose of the miracles were to give authority to the words that he said. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. And also, where are your accusers? And neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. The authority that Jesus had was proven by the miracles. The people only wanted to see the miracles. When Jesus began to speak and he began to teach about the truth of God's word and what it really meant to be a follower of God and what it really meant to sacrifice and what it really meant to give your heart to the living God, they really wanted nothing to do with it for the large part. And they continually, whenever Jesus would say something, show us a sign, show us a sign. For everything that Jesus said, everything that they didn't want to believe or receive, show us a sign, show us a sign. Finally, Jesus says to them, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But none will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish... So the Son of Man will be three, night, three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth. That's it. And remember when Jesus was telling the account of the rich man and Lazarus, and he was talking about the fact that the, man, the rich man lived in opulence and Lazarus was a beggar, but Lazarus was a believer in God. And both of them died, and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, paradise, the place of comfort, and the rich man who was not a believer in God went to the place in Hades of torment, and remember, he calls out to Abraham, have Lazarus come and put cool water on my tongue. And Abraham says, there's a chasm there that cannot be crossed. And the rich man says, well, if there's no hope for me, then send Lazarus back to tell my brothers about this place, for I'm in torment here. And Abraham says to the rich man, they have the law and they have the prophets. And if they won't believe what the law and the prophets say, in other words, what the scriptures say, then even if one were to come back from the grave, they would not believe. Faith is the essential part of everything that we have in Christ. That's how we receive all of the promises of God and everything that he's promised and everything that he's laid out for us. It's received by faith. The scripture is very clear on this. It's not through works. It's not through church attendance or doing good deeds, lest any man should boast. What Paul goes on to point out is, if you do good things and then expect God to bless you because of the good works that you do, that's not grace, that's you getting what you're owed. But God makes it abundantly clear that he doesn't owe us anything because of sin we're separated from God. Everything that he does for us is because of love. Because he loves you. Because you are his great treasure. 
That's what the parable means when Jesus talked about the man who found a treasure in a field and he went out and sold everything that he had so that he could purchase the field and thereby purchase the treasure as well. Jesus was talking about the heart of the Father who through the sacrifice of the Son who gave everything that he had to purchase the field that he might have the treasure. My friends, you are his treasure today. You are God's great treasure. And I don't know any other way or better way to compliment you or to tell you how much worth you have than to tell you that God sees you as treasure and was willing to give his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So Matthew chapter 28, when we finally get to this point, uh, and we're, I want to just kind of go through the sequence of events with you and so you can kind of picture it in your mind and, and see these things as, as they were taking place. Uh, chapter 28 begins, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Now in Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and John's account, each of them separately, individually, gives their account or their recounting of the events of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. Okay? And there's no contradiction. There's different viewpoints. There's a lot of people out there that will say, oh, the Bible completely contradicts itself because the words don't match exactly and, and the sequence of events aren't exactly verbatim, word for word. Matthew didn't seek out Mark's counsel before he wrote his gospel. And John didn't seek out Luke's counsel before he wrote his gospel. He wrote his personal experience. This is what happened. This is what I saw. Now, if you were standing in a court of law and the judge called forth three or four different witnesses to talk about an event that took place and every single one of them said exactly the same thing, you would say it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. You've all played telephone when you were kids, remember? Because your parents or your teachers were trying to prove a point to you how information changes as it goes. But if a judge calls up four witnesses and they all give a different account from their viewpoint and all of the facts of what happened line up, create a, a symmetrical line, you can gather this is the truth. This is what happened and that's exactly what the Gospels are. So now here's where we're at. Jesus Christ has died. He's been crucified. And something amazing happened after he died. Nicodemus, uh, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, this is the same Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night for fear of the other priests and asked him, what must a man do to have eternal life? And that's the man to whom Jesus said, you must be born again. That's where we get that statement, born again. 
Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy council member. And now you've got to remember, if you were a religious elite in Israel in those days, you were wealthy. We've been to Israel. We've seen some of these houses. And even by today's standards, they're amazing. These are wealthy, powerful men. And at one point in time in Jesus' ministry, when Nicodemus tries to speak up to defend Jesus, they say, are you one of his disciples as well? And cause Nicodemus to shut up. But now through the events of Jesus Christ's arrest, betrayal, arrest, uh, uh, beating, and execution, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea have both come to a point in their lives where they no longer care what anyone says or what anyone thinks. They are going to go on record for believing in this man. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea have gone to Pontius Pilate. They personally asked for the body of Jesus Christ. And now, in doing so, they are excommunicating themselves from the temple and from the Jewish faith. Make no mistake about it. Their families would then sit Shiva for them after this. They would be dead in their eyes for believing in Jesus Christ, whom the people believed and the teaching of the chief priests uh, were that he was a false prophet. They would be excommunicated. These are wealthy, powerful men, and they're willing to put it all on the line for what they believe to be true. And so they ask for the body of Jesus Christ and they take the body down from the cross and they carefully wash his body. It was unlawful for any religious Jew to be around a dead body, especially around this time of year. They don't care. And they take great care to wash Jesus' body and to anoint his body and they lay Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb, which was only for the wealthy, which was also a fulfillment of prophecy, that he would be buried with the wealthy and they lay them in the tomb, and they cover it with the stone. The chief priests have gone to Pilate as well and asked Pilate for Jesus' body to be guarded because they say, because that deceiver, when he was alive, said that on the third day he would rise from the grave. And we're afraid his disciples will come snatch his body and say, he rose from the dead. So therefore, we ask that you put a guard over the tomb. And Pilate does two things. First of all, he says to them, you have the guard, you have your guard. And then he says to them something very interesting. Make it as sure as you can. Because he sees the fear in their eyes. That they knew and they understand that there was way more to Jesus Christ than what they tried to make him out to be. Because they hated Jesus. It's not that they didn't believe in what he did. It's that they hated Jesus because he threatened their way of life. Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ makes no uh, excuse or makes no compromise in that it asks us to be willing to give all of who we are and what we believe into his hands. And if something that I want to do or something that I believe contradicts what he says, that I would be willing to surrender my will to his will. That's all this was about. They were not going to give up their power. They were not going to give up their authority over the people in order to believe in Jesus who said, you're all equal. And they hated him for it. And Pilate says, make it as sure as you can. Uh, and so <clears throat> four hours, uh, remember, if you, well, I'm going to skip over that part. Um, if you recall, though, four hours before Jesus Christ had died, there had been darkness that came over the land. There was a great earthquake at the time of Jesus' death. 
The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. You remember the centurion who was guarding the crucifixion site when Jesus died. As he was looking up at him, he said, he exclaimed, this surely was the Son of God. And no doubt, Pilate is keeping a close eye and watch on all of these events that are taking place. And we're going to talk more about Pontius Pilate in a bit. But he tells the chief priests, you have your guard, make it as sure as you can. Now, concerning this Roman guard, in 390 AD, when the Roman Empire was in decline, Flavius, for, for something, for Gaitus, <laughs> Romitus, poor kid, you know, uh, what's your kid's name? <laughs> Flavius Mujominus, you know. Uh, he was a historian. He was given an order by Caesar in 390 A.D. to dig through the archives of the Roman legions uh, as they were, <laughs> they, were, they were desperate to try to restore the glory of Rome. 390 A.D., the Roman Empire is in decay. It is in decline. It is crumbling from within. And in a frenzy, really, to try to restore the former glory of Rome. Let's see how we used to do it. And so this Flavius was given an order to look up the archives and concerning specifically the Roman legions. And one of the things that he uncovered and that he wrote about were concerning the Roman watch or the Roman guard. Now, this would be the same Roman watch that was put over guarding the tomb of Jesus Christ. The Roman watch or guard was a 16-man team. Each of them carried a shield, a spear, a short sword, a javelin, and a sling. Okay? And these men were elites. With that sling, they could hit a man in the neck or the head at 70 yards. Okay? That's how good they were, with pinpoint accuracy. They were also trained to move within the confines of their shields as a unit without being penetrated while inflicting heavy casualties with their spears. Now, here were the rules that they lived by. If one of them fell asleep on duty, all 16 would be put to death. If one of them fell asleep. So, when they were training, when they were going through their Roman basic training, and they were training for this, this, this position... If one of them would fall asleep, they wouldn't wake him up. They would go, you know, the little, the little skirts that the Roman soldiers wore. They would sneak over while he was sleeping and light it on fire. And you don't fall asleep anymore, like ever. And it's not because you're not tired. It's because you're afraid of what these guys are going to do to you. But it was a matter of life or death. The point is that these were elites. These were elite Soldiers, These were an elite guard, and they were charged with guarding this tomb, and their lives depended on it. Now, the other thing that we know is that the seal of Rome was put on the tomb of Jesus Christ. And the penalty for breaking a Roman seal, you would be crucified upside down. You would be crucified upside down for breaking a Roman seal. If they couldn't find you because you ran away and they knew what hometown you were from, they would crucify your entire hometown. You don't break a Roman seal. It was very, very serious. What they don't know uh, is, is, well, the women, um, remember Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are heading to the tomb. Now, just get this, just kind of get this picture in your mind. It's early in the morning before first light. It's still dark out, and the women are heading to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus Christ. They have absolutely no idea that there's a Roman guard there. Otherwise, they would not have even bothered because they're not getting in the tomb. 
They're not going to get past the guard, and they're not going to break that Roman seal. They had absolutely no idea that this, these events had taken place. So as they're heading to the tomb, they're talking about their big concern is, how are we going to roll the stone away? Because a stone would have been about 3,200 pounds. How are we going to roll the stone away in order to anoint his body? Uh, and what they don't know, and this is taking from the other gospel accounts, is that an angel had descended from heaven. Uh, it's partially dark outside. The accounts here, and this is interesting too, another interesting thing is that the gospel of Matthew, remember Matthew was a tax collector. So Matthew worked for the Roman Empire collecting taxes from the Jewish people. He had a guard at his back. He understood the way that the Roman Empire worked in this capacity. And it's interesting that he gives this, this uh, viewpoint of what the only way that he would know what the soldiers saw is that they had given an account. Uh, and so here it is, first thing in the morning, and we have an angel that descends from heaven. It's early morning, like I said, it's dark. And it says that this angel glistens like lightning. He shines like lightning. And picture in your mind this angel descending from heaven. He's like a continual lightning strike in appearance. He hits the ground. There's an earthquake. He walks over to this. This is in the presence of the 16 soldier elite guard. He walks over to the tombstone. He rolls it away. And then he hops up on top of it. Turns around and says, hey. 16 hardened Roman special forces soldiers hit the ground like dead men, the Bible says, and convulse. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, somebody get knocked out really bad uh, and then go into convulsions. It is a weird, like scary, freaky thing because you feel like, oh my gosh, are they going to die? These 16 hardened warriors see this angel and they drop like they were dead men and convulse. It says they dropped and shook. Um, <laughs> when they come to, they do what anyone would do in that situation. They go see a priest, right? You don't go to report, uh, you don't go home, you don't go to report to your, 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 uh, your commander, you go see a priest. So that's exactly what they do because they understand the situation, who had charged them to be put watch over the tomb. So they go to the, tell the, the chief priest exactly what happened, who then gather the elders. This is the amazing part. And they tell the elders what had happened, and this is what they do. They give the soldiers a pile of money, and they tell them, if anyone asks you what happened, tell them you fell asleep and the disciples stole his body. Now, concerning what we talked about, you see how problematic that is? First of all, if they fell asleep, if one of them fell asleep, all 16 of them are put to death. Secondly, if the disciples did come and break that seal, each one of them has to be crucified. Upside down, mind you. And so this is what the chief priests tell the soldiers. They tell them, we'll give you a pile of money. This is the story you're going to get. And don't worry about yourselves. If it gets back to Pilate, we'll straighten it out with him. And this is a fascinating turn of events here. So... Uh, Matthew tells us that this story is widely reported still to this day, which means the word must have gotten back to Pilate. So two things. What became of these soldiers who saw these events, but were then paid off by the priest to say, we fell asleep and the disciples took them? Were they put to death? We don't know their, where, uh, their, what their fate was. But more importantly, what happened to the disciples? What happened to the disciples? What they did was a capital offense if the story was true. Remember, 
And they don't leave Jerusalem. They don't leave Jerusalem. They stay in Jerusalem because Jesus had told them to, to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then when the day of Pentecost happens, they go out and they began to preach to everyone, what? That Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. And no one lays a hand on them. Now, the history of Pontius Pilate, one of the things about Pilate that was interesting, he he ends up being excommunicated, pulled out of Judea and excommunicated by the Roman Empire. But one of the things that he had been chastised for on several occasions was he is very antagonistic towards the religion of the Jewish people. When he marched his soldiers in, the, the prefects before him would take the images off of their banners and flags because a graven image... Would they, they did, the Jewish people didn't want to have it in Jerusalem or anywhere near the temple. Pontius Pilate on purpose left those images on their banners just to incite them. He really was not a fan of the religious people at all. Remember when he's talking to Jesus and Jesus tells him, I am the voice of truth and anyone who, who wants to hear truth hears my voice. Remember what Pilate says, what is truth? You know, he's this agnostic kind of guy. He's this misbelieving guy, but he cannot stand these chief priests. And what's interesting to me in this whole situation is how Pilate completely lets this alone. He never pursues the disciples to have them punished for supposedly breaking this Roman seal. But that's the story that gets circulated. Now, going on in the life of the disciples, in these, they would become the apostles as they go off into starting the church and to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of these guys... Every single one of these guys, except for John, who was banished to the island of Patmos and where he died of old age, every single one of them was martyred, was put to death because they would not recant what they said to be true about Jesus Christ. That he was the Son of God, that he had died on the cross, but that he had rose from the grave. And none of them would recant it. Peter, before he was crucified, saw his wife and son put to death in front of him. And he would not recant what he said to be true about Jesus Christ. So then the question becomes, what do we believe? What do we believe? The evidence is there. The history is there. The empty tomb is there. There's no reason for any person to not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you choose to believe but we all of us have a choice to make. And that's what today is all about. Today is all about that choice. And it's all about celebrating that choice to believe in who Jesus Christ is, who we claim to be, and that he rose from the grave. Amen? Come on in, guys. We're going to share uh, communion together really quick. Uh, and this is, this is such a privilege. It, it always is such a privilege for us to share this, this table together. Remember, guys, again... This is the Passover meal, okay? This is, this is right now in, in Israel, we're at the time of Passover. And this is the Passover meal. Uh, this doesn't look like a traditional Passover meal. But this is the Passover meal that Jesus Christ was sharing with his disciples. And as he's sharing the Passover meal, he changes everything up about it. The Passover was always a celebration of the children of Israel's deliverance from bondage and slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, And now Jesus Christ is sharing it in a completely different way. That this meal now for you as disciples of Jesus Christ represents your deliverage of bondage, from bondage to sin and death. That's what this meal represents for us. That's why when Jesus passed it out to his disciples, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. 
Take it and eat it and remember what I've done for you. When he passes the cup to his disciples, and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. When you drink this cup, when you share this cup, do it in remembrance of me. So this is a meal that Jesus Christ personally gave to his disciples to be passed on to everyone who would believe in him that we could celebrate this together today. That we could celebrate what Jesus accomplished at the cross and the fact that this sacrifice that he made for us stands for all time because he's not dead. Because he's alive. And the Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father forever to make intercession on our behalf. On our behalf. That means whenever any sin of yours or mine, which are many, come before the throne, the Bible says we have an advocate. Jesus Christ is your spiritual attorney. Not only is your spiritual attorney, he already paid the fines. All of them. Not just for the sins you've done, but the sins you've, you're currently maybe doing and the sins you're going to do. Our part in this is to accept that sacrifice. To receive that, to believe that, to say, God, I want to be cleansed. I want to be purified. And I want to get better. I want to move on in this relationship. This is something that we say all the time. It is okay. Listen to me very carefully, guys. It is okay for you to be where you are today in Christ. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay there. Allow God to stretch you. Allow God to move you. And a lot of times he does that through the, the inconvenient, uh, you know, painful times in our life. He'll draw us closer to himself. Allow him to have his work in you. But this today, this is a celebration of what God has done through Jesus Christ. So let's share it together.